Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's the most wonderful time of the year, Christmas. And what better way to get into the holiday spirit than with a Minky Couture blanket? Whether you're gathered around the tree with loved ones, roasting marshmallows by the fire, or just looking for a cozy way to stay warm on a chilly night, Minky blankets are the perfect addition to your Christmas festivities. With a wide range of festive designs and colors, you can find the perfect blanket to match your holiday decor or gift to your loved ones. So this Christmas, make your holiday even cozier with a Minky Couture blanket. Head to MinkyCouture.com now and find your perfect blanket, just in time for the holiday. Happy Holidays from Minky Couture. At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as $249. Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I'm going to fire right in. And okay. there is obviously going to be lots of questions, which I'm sure you've been over before, but I'm going to try and come with a new angle with some of them. And um, basically, the first thing is because I remember when I was growing up as a, as a, a young kid, and anything my mum played or anything my dad played, I immediately rejected now when you come up when you grow up in a musical family I'm just wondering did you grow up and think oh god dad's music can't stand it oh god mum's singing on this don't like that what was your reaction and when did you actually probably as a teenager start to develop your own musical taste um okay so the answer is I couldn't stand my dad's taste in music well actually it wasn't so much that it's just the music he played was like uh, country music and which I really didn't like country music however my mother had fantastic musical taste she liked Earth Wind and Fire, Aretha Franklin, Thelma Houston, Rickley Jones I think I, I don't know if I, I may have discovered Rickley Jones on my own I think actually uh, but all the old soul stuff the proper American uh, soul and blues so I loved my mum's taste in music and there were many parties at our house because they were very much sort of um, you know they were always having parties and always on tour so very much a musician's lifestyle although um, I, I hasten to add in some ways both coming from quite working class backgrounds well very working class backgrounds they were very grounded you know they weren't sort of big drug takers or you know there was probably a bit of dope going around I imagine it was everywhere in those days um, 
but you know it wasn't it wasn't ugly in any way it, it was just everyone was always having a good time and I remember often dancing around the living room to Quincy Jones or you know singing along to Aretha or whatever it was uh, so there was that and I think I started developing my own taste really um, I loved that soul and blues although at that age I suppose I would have been about 11 or 12 so I didn't really recognize the value of blues music in our culture as we recognize it today um, and all my friends were into punk rock and then I start I was listening to Kate Bush uh, um, Ricky Lee Jones uh, my dad actually put me onto Randy Newman one of his better likes I think a lot of people have the idea of a, of a musical family being you know all sitting around the <laughs> I don't know, the hearth and singing along or something. And of course, that's a load of ball. <laughs> In my family was really my father, even when he was there, he wasn't present. And and that really impacted me in my, in my life. And because your parents were musicians, they would have been away a lot. And if you're not yeah. away with them, then they're not always present in your life. So how was that for you? And how do you feel that impacted you? Well, certainly I think you're right. And perhaps that's a generation thing or an age thing, because I think our parents, you know, today's parenting, you know, people actually know what parenting is. I mean, that's the first thing, isn't it? You know, uh, I don't, parenting was certainly never discussed. You were just a, really a, an inconvenience, quite a large one. That's how I was brought up, you know, shut up, get out of the room, don't do that you know whatever it was you can't wear that that sort of thing uh, but they were away a lot we had a lot of nannies or au pairs um, and yes you're right total bollocks uh, nobody sits around the fireplace playing their instruments and singing with their children well perhaps they do but they didn't in our family and my dad <clears throat> I love my dad to bits but it's taken me a long time to come to terms with who he is you know he wasn't uh, as many uh, dads of that era wasn't particularly nice to to us uh, so I think um, yeah they my dad my dad wasn't present definitely not and there wasn't a connection my mum was very taken up with her career and her life but there was no doubt that she loved us uh, hugely and, and actually, to be fair, in later life, I think my dad, my dad definitely loves, he loves us to bits and my, you know, all the grandchildren and everything. So um, there wasn't a connection when we were young. No, you're absolutely right. And I would say that, no, they weren't really present. Um, and very often we were left to our own devices. Did you uh, have dreams as a young person? Great. <laughs> yeah, well, great. <laughs> in one, one point of view, probably. <laughs> in yeah. another, I'm sure it could be terrifying for the parents yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Did you have dreams of working in any anything else but the music industry? Because if someone said to me, oh, you can do what your dad did, which was a market trader, I would have um, shot myself. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I guess we always want what we haven't got, don't we? Um, I, I didn't really think for a minute about what I what I wanted to do. I just did it and it was never a consideration. So I only really got to actually making real proper adult choices. Well, very late in life because my life sort of took me by the hand and dragged me through it, you know, and I've been incredibly fortunate and, and I've worked very hard as well. Um, uh, but I've, I now, because I can't sing and I see how real life affects people, real life, going to work in the same job for 50 years, real life, having that taken away from you, having a pension taken away from you, getting ill, not having traveled, you know, real life's pretty fucking grim, isn't it? Let's face it, you know? So I've been really lucky. Um, but uh, I got no idea what I'm talking about. I'm rambling on, and I've forgotten my thread completely. <laughs> well, actually, I'll take you to something um, else because, in re retrospect, when yeah. you look back at things, they are slightly different, and you have a different view of what happened, you know, to you in your earlier years. And your father had a recording studio, and quite some famous people would record in that studio, and yeah. you would presumably be there maybe meet them maybe hear them recording and so on yeah who was there and is there any are there any people that you look back on and say oh yeah that's where I 
grasp this. That's where I understood this about a recording process or about how a voice is used or how, I don't know, how to phrase things. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think all of that uh, learning about music from other people came much later. I learned a lot from my mum and from the people I sang with. I did backing vocals from the age of, I think, 11 or 12, although I'd done it before that because, as you say, my dad had one of the first multi-track recording studios in London. Um, I met a few people, but really, you know, celebrity was of no interest to me whatsoever because I was a child. Um, and the people that I... I remember we had an engineer at the studio called John Wright and he used to drive a black Rover 100 and he used to teach us to make little insects out of soldering wire. So that is, you know, that's a very creative thing and it's very caring of him as an adult to spend time with children, you know, doing that. So I think it was more, I, I learned more <clears throat> and not necessarily about music, I learned more about people through meeting people who worked within the creative field, if you like, because when you do music every day, you're alive every day. You, know, you talk about your dad not being present. Um, that's because he was working really hard, probably. And I'm not I'm not forgiving him or passing any judgment at all. But when you're working within the creative field, if you're doing music or art or if you're on tour, everything changes all the time everything around you changes or you work in one place as in a, a studio and the people come through it change you know everything changes the music changes the and so you're you kind of have this ongoing nature of adapt adaptability which i think is you know it's massive God, i hesitate to use the word gift but i can't think of any other word but it is you know it's normal people don't get to experience that and you're it's it really is a fantastic thing to be a part of in every way I mean also developing your musical voice um yeah, <laughs> yeah that's good. it sounds a bit weird but to, to develop that voice I presume that your mother played an, a very important role in that because you you mentioned about the singers that she loved and that's what she introduced you to where do you feel your musical voice started to develop? And can you sort of explain that process? Um, I think, oh gosh, that's really difficult. I think my early songs were pretty rubbish, actually, a lot of them. Um, but... Uh, but is that because there's the depth of which you could go into yourself at that stage because of the life events that happened to you later, which we'll come to, but the, de the depths of what you could express in those, you know, in early years is very different to what we can do today as people. I, I'm a writer and, and my voice is based in my pain as well. And I know when I feed on that pain, what I write yeah. on the page will move people and it moves yeah. me. And I imagine it's the same for you. It was, uh, it is, uh, not so much anymore, it's different now, but you're absolutely right. And I think as a child, I think that there was, I did I did feel pain, emotional pain. Um, I don't know why I did, but I did. And I think having two children of my own now, I think some people um, inherit that, that type of personality, you know? So I think that some people are born with the pain and some people, the pain is exacerbated through whatever their life has been up to that moment. I was left on my own a lot. I was left in charge of a big house a lot when I was very young, so from the age of 12 or 13. So, and I didn't feel sorry for myself, but I was able, but I went into myself. So I'm quite, uh, I tend to go inwards, you know, and I think it came from there. And I think you're right. I think that one connects with a feeling, whether it's pain or happiness, but it's, it's actually when you actually really feel a feeling. I mean, the song Stop, I, the, the woman in the song, I think she's obviously she's a plonker. She should leave the bloke. What on earth is she thinking of, right? And that is so not the person I would think that I am. But I do relate to that, you know, the pain of love. Um, so I'm not quite sure where that came from. But that's, that's uh, so Stop is an interpretation of a feeling. And I think that all songs are interpretations of feelings, aren't they? As you say, and when you connect with your own feelings, uh, other people can feel that. That's how, that's how I see it, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, um, no, I, I think what, you know, that's why I mentioned it as a voice, because as a voice in terms of what you're trying to express to the world, not in terms of the singing voice, but in terms yeah. of the voice within you, yeah. it's really important. You know, we see it in all films. That's why we cry during a movie. That's why we're touched. You know, when we go and see a play, that's why a piece of music will motivate us to have some feelings that relate to us not necessary to the person that wrote it um so I think those things are really important now you when you were a young teenager did your first session work and I just wondered it was with um I think it was with Steve Marriott wasn't it of the of of the small faces and your mother was also there what advice do you remember that she gave you during that process? Because she must have guided you at that time. Well, I think, you know, my mum wasn't an advice-giving type of person. My mum was somebody who was very positive. And she would have, I don't actually remember any specific words, uh, but I do remember her attitude would have been, it'll be fine, don't worry about it, it's going to be fine. You know, just kind of, stick to what you need to do and don't worry about it so and also by that time I'd probably done quite a lot of singing in studios already anyway so it wasn't like a big reveal it was I also knew Steve Marriott very well he'd been he was a very good friend of the family so I knew him well and I'd met all the other guys because they'd been to my dad's studio so it was you know it was really like they were kind of like oh yeah no Sammy get Sammy on this we'll have her on it you know little little Sammy whatever they called me um and so it was more that. So it's very much a family event. It wasn't the kind of turning up for professional engagement type of thing. Um, so we, it would have just been a laugh. I mean, everything that I did with my mum, and in fact, singing as a professional backing singer, it was always fun. There was never any element of you're not doing your job right or we're not paying you because that wasn't good enough. Although in later years, mum and I did get thrown off a French session for being a bit drunk and raucous, I seem to remember. What um, happened? Well, I don't know. We were probably just giggling and swearing or something. Oh, God, who knows? Uh, um, I mean, you weren't the only uh, member of the family. You've got a younger brother. Yes, uh, I Obviously, have you've been working with on practically everything. Not everything completely, but yeah. practically everything in your life. Um, was there a, a, a touch of sibling rivalry as you were sort of young? Or were you always close? Uh, we weren't. We were... No, we weren't always close. We got on okay, um, but we each had our own friends. And then uh, Pete moved into London when he was 16 and became an uh, what we used to call a tape-op at Powerplant Studio. So he left home at 16, very young, and he worked with all sorts of fantastic people. And we kind of parted company then for quite a few years because I moved into London at the same time, well, it was about the same time, I was 17 because I'm a bit older than him. And I just did session work and wrote songs and did a bit of cleaning and a bit of waitressing. So that was that. And we were both in London. Um, and what happened was um, I signed to AM Records, which took a long time to come about because the guy that I wanted to sign to, Brian Shepherd, was at Phonogram. And then he wanted to, he was leaving Phonogram and it took two years. So they told us they were going to sign us and then we were hanging around for quite a long time. Um, and then basically uh, A&M, Brian and Chris Briggs put me into the studio with a lovely producer called Pete Smith, who did Dream of the Blue Turtles. He's a great producer, but it was very much a kind of, it sounded very sessiony. It was the top, the top session musicians, all of whom are still great friends and lovely people. But it felt a bit clinical to me. It felt a bit sessiony, if I'm honest. And Pete saw it in a different way. I think he saw it more kind of a bit heavier, a bit rough around the edges. And we kind of talked about it and I would have been 20 at this point, 21. And then we started working together and then we started to realize that we got on really well and we worked very well together. So, yeah. So when you say that was a bit session-y, how did you move away from that? What was his, what, what was his role in that? And how did you actually take it away from that area? Uh, well, I think Pete's very much, uh, he's very much a self-taught musician. 
and he likes he's a guitarist so obviously has to be center stage so that was me out of the picture straight away no sibling rivalry here at all steve um and uh, so it was a bit rockier really and he'd been working with some different people also my foster brother richard newman who's tony newman's son who used to be in a he used to play with t-rex and bowie and he was a session drummer he now well he was playing with the everly brothers um so that was uncle tony who was bonkers and Rich was also living in London and he was just the, he is the most amazing rock drummer. He played with Rory Gallagher. He's recently played with Paul Rogers. He's a fantastic drummer, real energy about him. And so basically we treated it more like a band situation, if you see what I mean. So we rehearsed up the songs as a band and it was a bit less overdubby and more bandy. But we used, we used some of, we used some of Pete Smith's, tracks as well so it was a it was a real mixture had you been writing i know you've been writing poetry were you did you start to write poetry when you were young or is that something that came later i'm just wondering how your that that process of writing lyrics and writing songs where that really came from and where that started uh, well i think um really all all of my song most you could say 98 percent of my songs from day one have come from the words. Um, and I think it's taken me quite a long time to actually, as you say, find my voice musically because I didn't really have a concept of genres. And I know that sounds a bit mad, but I didn't think, oh, no, I want to be a blues singer or no, I want to be a, I want to be a pop singer. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't keen on popular music, which was the 80s, you know, wasn't really that keen on punk rock. I didn't quite get that. Um, I loved the fashion um, and some of the attitude, but I was quite a gentle person, really. Um, so I was writing philosophy, a massive Stevie Wonder fan. So I think I kind of picked up on that kind of spread, spread the love vibe in music, you know. So it was about creating music that had an idea and a philosophy behind it and so the words were really important to me and that's what came first the words always came first um and then the music came afterwards and it took me a long time i think to understand musically songwriting how to craft a song and how for it to work musically i mean if we go back though to that uh first album the first single off that album um didn't really move too much and I remember that uh, you've told in interviews that even when Stop came out that I I'm not sure if it was when Stop came out or it was when the first single came out that the the BBC didn't play it no, yet not you were played in yeah, Europe no. sorry yeah, that's right yeah no that's right that's right the BBC didn't pick it up they didn't pick up any of my my music I think possibly uh, had something to do with the fact that my dad and uncle Tony uh, were blacklisted uh, by the BBC because they went to, I think it was the Eurovision Song Contest and my mum and Tony's wife were doing backing vocals. And I, I, I got this vague idea of a story where they went into the Groven House Hotel and fish hooked all the tablecloths together and laid, and laid them on the floor. And then when everyone was sat down, they pulled them tight so that when the waiters came round, all the tablecloths came up. Now that could just be a completely made up story, but that's what I heard. And I don't, I think my dad may have possibly misbehaved. And so, you know, getting, they, the BBC never really wanted to play my stuff. I mean, it's different now because obviously I've known a lot of these people for years and obviously have been on radio shows and stuff, but it took for Stop to go to number one in about, I think it was about, seven countries before they actually would play on the radio in England. So but your success initially was in Europe. Do, have you ever thought about why it was Europe that took to you? I think, I think it was because the record company worked bloody hard at marketing and promoting it. I don't think that success in music, if I'm really honest, has got that much to do with the music. I really don't. I think that if a record company picks something up, they can sell it if they want to. Um, depends on whether they've got a strong opinion about something. Um, I, I don't think I, 
I probably didn't do myself any favours because I was quite outspoken and and I well I didn't think I was obviously but but I certainly wasn't I was like well no I'm not doing that that's rubbish why would I want to do that you know so it's kind of I didn't wasn't really up for playing the game didn't care if I was famous or not I wanted people to hear my music but I was very happy that I'd made a record and really care how many people heard it so uh, from their point of view I probably wasn't an awful lot of use. <laughs> I mean, you were you were played to death with Stop on MTV around yeah. Europe. You know, that yeah. was, uh, you know, I remember that vividly because obviously sitting in the office, <laughs> see you, you know, 20 times a day. Or, um, right. How did you feel about that image of you? Because a video, you know, a three minute or four minute video presents the image of an artist which is in that video and reinforces that particular image. So for the wider public, you are that person, as yeah. Madonna was that person in Like a Virgin. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it is this yeah. reinforcement, and it may not be the person. So I just wondered how you felt about your image in the video and whether that felt like you at all, and if that was un uncomfortable then. I love your question, Steve. I love this. This is great. You, it's really like, you know, you, obviously your years at MTV are or just in the music industry, it's just great. You're, you're completely connected to it all. It's fabulous. I love it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically, I when I turned up, when I first went to the record company, I was a bit goth, what would have been goth, although such a thing didn't exist. But I loved vintage old, long black clothes. I had a big black floppy hat I used to wear. And I was incredibly shy, incredibly shy. And really didn't like myself very much you know so actually this whole thing of you know and makeup I had a couple of bad experiences with makeup artists um who were like oh god you know what we're going to do here because I I didn't went to the beauty parlor I didn't give a shit about whether I had hairy eyebrows or you know I just wasn't really wasn't where my priorities lay at all so I found the whole thing quite difficult but you know I'm a quick learner and um, I realised that, you know, I was in it. This is what I was doing. I was promoting a record. It's a business. I am now a can of beans. Uh, so I need to behave and do as I'm told because this is my job. I've signed up for this, you know. So I think the image of me in stop has got absolutely nothing to do with me at all. And it does not in any way reflect who I was at the time. Do you think there was a certain naivety on your part in terms of, knowing what the considering you know what your parents did knowing what the music industry is or definitely was at that point I don't know if it is because I'm not really that involved in it but yeah. you know if that really was that and that you were actually quite naive to expect it to be something different I absolutely was totally naive um I wasn't I had no concept of what the music industry was. I, I lived with music and musicians. I didn't live in the music industry. It was a horrible shock. It was a really horrible shock, you know, because I'd, I'd seen, I suppose the, the most I'd seen of it was my dad and his attitude toward publicity, which he didn't really like it. But he was basically like, you don't show the bastards anything. You know, you don't give yourself away. You don't tell the truth in interviews. You don't, you know, you tell them what, you know, it's all an act. Whereas as the first thing you said to me was about our, our meeting. And I suppose what I took away from my dad's attitude, which I do understand. And I think it, it provides a safety net and it's sensible, actually. It is sensible because it draws, you know, it gives people boundaries, which is good. But for me, um, and I know this is going to sound incredibly hippie, but every person that I meet is, there they you know you are you and I am meeting you and that is to me valuable um and because I'm not doing it to you know to further my career because I I mean I was actually because I was working for a record company but from my own point of view what was more important was how I was spending my time and whom I was spending my time with does that make sense yeah you said something very interesting there you said I was working for a record company <laughs> now isn't that's you know maybe the reality but that is to me it's a weird thing to say is when it you're, yeah when you're an artist it's like 
I don't know. It's like, fuck well, this is me. <laughs> you know, this is what yeah, I want to do. Yeah, but actually having the confidence to do that is, I didn't have the confidence to do that. You know, I was on the back foot already because I didn't look the part. I didn't act the part. And I didn't want to do the things they wanted me to do. So everything was a compromise and a battle. And, and when you, you know, the thing is, when you make music and you write songs, at this point, I should say, I've been to America to write with people. I'd written with lots of other people. I collaborated with people. I've been working with musicians. I'd been doing music for, you know, let me think, you know, probably six or seven years already. And I think it was, uh, it was a shock because they just weren't interested in music and they didn't know the first thing about it as far as I could tell. You know, they didn't know when something felt right. And when you work in music, it's really important that it feels right because it's not like working in an orchestra or you know, you're making it up. You know, if you go in to do a backing vocal session, you usually write the backing vocals. You usually create the backing vocals. And, you know, and that's how it was. So to have it sort of formularized and set in front of you and it's like, you can't do that and you can't do this and you have to do this and you have to behave like that. And, you know, it's just, it wasn't that I was a, a difficult person, but it was a shock. Is that what happened with the second album? Because there must have been enormous pressure on you to come back with another stop. <laughs> I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, I think they wanted that. And to me, that seemed incredibly short-sighted. I did, however, write at least three rocking blues soul ballads, which are really good. And, you know, there's there's a... Sorry, there's someone outside my window, Steve. I don't know what's going on. Give them a <laughs> wave. going to shut the window. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, so I think... Uh, I did do that, but the thing about stock was it wasn't indicative of my music anyway. It's the one that they picked up on, but it was the, you know, it was the odd one out, definitely. Um, and the blues soul element for me came later, really, when I started working with Jules and I started to really understand it and where it came from. And One thing we have in common, and this is a tough one, and it's a tough one for me as well, is I nursed my mum who had cancer um, for three years. She had lung cancer. She was a lot older. She was 93 when she died. Um, and I'd been incredibly close to my mum uh, in my life. Yeah. And in the last 15 years, I live in Germany and I would travel backwards and forwards and look after her. And it grew and grew and grew until I lived there the last three years and accompanied her until the moment she died. So I, I went through that whole process. And I hope this isn't difficult because I do find talking about it valuable for me as well, that yeah. when her diagnosis came, I mean, I was with her when her diagnosis came and it's obviously incredibly difficult for the person when they get that diagnosis, but it's also incredibly difficult. And I would imagine it was also incredibly difficult for you at that moment because like me, I was trying to be strong and trying to say to her, okay, you know, like there's still time. Hopefully we can enjoy these things and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And at the same time in my head, and I wondered if that was there with you, that I was thinking, shit, what the fuck am I going to do without mum? And I just wondered if you went through that whole process as well and how 
you remained strong or did you manage to talk about it with your mum? Well, yes. Uh, okay, so uh, where do I start with this? Uh, it wasn't, so my mum went, to the, she was 50 when she died, she was very young. Um, and she, uh, she, she only she discovered she had cancer because I made her go to the doctors. I said, you've got to go, that's not right, go to the doctors. And she went and she was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Um, now, <laughs> my mum and I, uh, we were very, very close and we worked together a lot. And we had a filthy sense of humour. And we, when she was diagnosed, uh, I can't remember the time scale, but around that time, we got pissed one night and we wrote three pages. It was, it was basically, you know, it's like, well, Mrs. Brown went to the doctor with her pile swinging gently between her thighs. And, you know, it was absolutely, the whole thing was hysterical. So basically, completely different. <laughs> To your experience we both completely took the piss out of it is what happened initially um and then I think my mum was my mum was a very she really wanted to be happy all the time she very much felt strongly that there was no point ever in being negative she was completely positive uh she changed her diet she looked after herself but she didn't want to read about it. She didn't want to talk about it. Um, we, myself and my brother uh, said, look, it would be really good if you did just, this is a bit further on, if you did just go and have, do a bit of counselling, you know, or see somebody. And she went and she came back. She said, I'm not bloody going back there. I said, why not? They said, they made me cry. I'm not doing that again. You know, and it was like, because, you know, she hadn't necessarily had a really easy time of it um so I think uh she basically ignored it mum basically ignored it and I think that when she just lived her life to the best of her ability outside of what she had to do so she she had bowel cancer and they operated on that and uh then they found she had secondary liver cancer which is what killed her um and uh she just remained very positive she knocked up a whacking credit card bill by buying dresses from Vogue, which I think she left for my dad. Um, and she just flipped, she sit, I remember her being in the, cause she had health insurance, which I don't have, but she was in the London clinic and she'd be there with all the magazines with it hooked up to her chemo, you know, which made her so very ill. And she'd be there and she'd be going, and she'd flick through and she'd go, pass me the phone. And she had a landline obviously in those days. And she found she and she phoned up both. She said, "Yep, can you? I want to buy the dress on page 195. Yep, two thousand pounds. Yep, that's fine in white. Thank you. Yes." And she literally just she was. It was like you, bollocks to you, cancer. I'm I am gonna really live my life. And she she did. She looked amazing. She carried on singing. She very publicly dealt with her cancer in Holland. Uh, so no, I've seen yeah. excerpts on TV shows. Yeah. I've been watching yeah. them and quite. You know, I felt like, oh, God, that's a really tough in a live show in front of a live audience to ask about someone's cancer when clearly and you can see in your mother's face that she's presenting hope. But at the same time, you have this feeling she knows. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and that, yeah She said something like, well, this, they said they said there's nothing that can be done, but there is another treatment. So she was grasping onto a little bit of hope yeah. which I experienced with my mum that everything was always this little bit of hope that it isn't that it isn't going to happen and yeah. and I thought wow that she's a she's a powerful woman to be able to deal with that situation and sing on a show yeah. do you know what I mean yeah yeah she was she was amazing and and you know she really had no confidence and so it you know she made her she made she made her last year's really count she really did and then in holland they have um there's a couple of places and it's called the vicky brown house because she became quite famous in holland and it's a place where people can go to talk to other people with cancer to discover alternative therapies and and actually i think you know i i learned i mean i was very angry after my mum died and i've seen a couple of interviews that i did where i was like whoa you know you are really struggling there you know 
but um, I did learn a lot from it. And I think when your life is hopeless, when really there is not going to be a happy ending, what are you going to do? Are you going to go, oh, well, it's going to be a bad ending. I just won't bother. Are you going to go, I'm just going to call into a hole? No, you're not. You're going to do positive things that make you feel happy and a good and you know and that's what she did and it was lovely lovely to see one of um, my most amazing memories of my mother was two nights before she died um and at that stage we'd all I'd got a hospital bed in the front room and I'd slept next to her for oh. two weeks and you do everything I mean and I mean everything at that point obviously but we were incredibly <laughs> close and um two nights before she died she said I want to talk to you and I knew this was going to be the last communication you know I knew this was going to be the moment that she was going to say what she wanted to say and it was the most beautiful thing and it will never ever leave me that she told me what she wanted for my life you know she started off and she said I want you to meet a man who is as kind to you as you have been to me and then she looked from the future to say what I was doing with my life all along the lines of what I want in my life (laughs) do you know what I mean so I have this sort of vision of when I'm low uh, and I feel like, oh, God, things aren't going that well, then I think of that moment and it will pull me back. And I wonder if you had a moment with your mum that you don't have to tell me what it is, but that moment where you can cherish and you can look back and, and that gives you the, the, the will to carry on. Um, I don't think there is a specific moment for me, actually. Um, but I think... As I get older, um, we I have so many good memories of being with my mum. And I think what happened for me was when she died, um, a part of her, this sounds really bad, uh, but a part of her lived on in me. You know, So I started to recognise her in myself, almost like she was inhabiting me, you know. And I think, and it is... It's, it's definitely a subconscious thing. I don't think it's a conscious thing. So whether it's my own brain doing that for me or whether it's a real thing where part of my mother's spirit does inhabit my body, I don't know. But, you know, it's fine with me because it means she's there. Um, and obviously I have children and it is so sad because she was by far the nicest person in our family. The rest of us are twats, really. Uh, you know. I mean, you created an album um, in her honour um I did. afterwards 43 minutes um yeah. which i was listening to this morning and it completely moved oh, me God. <laughs> um, <laughs> no because i wanted to listen to it before the before the interview and it completely moved me because i have a you know a similar experience obviously and that and i thought that was wonderful and what you said at the end my mother is with me and i i don't know what that means either i do think it's just that you're so closely connected that they do feel like they're with you for the rest of your life. And that is a very beautiful thing. One thing that I had afterwards was a complete reorientation because your parents, if you imagine like being on a train and your parents or, and I think your closest parent is the train ahead. So they're the ones you're, you know, it's like you're orienting yourself towards the train ahead. You're following them. And then that train's gone. And it's like, oh, fuck, what do I do with my, where do I go now? What do I do with my life? And that yeah. album is, for me, someone who's trying to grasp that and someone who's going through that through that process, which is the beauty of that album. Was it, you know, you mentioned that it was hell afterwards and these interviews where you don't even sort of recognise yourself today. But was that a moment of reorienting yourself and really, like, deciding what to value in life had changed um yes it was I think it was all of those things um one of the reviews of the album said it was therapy and I think in some ways it was I mean I it took me I don't know how long it took me to write the album but I literally was just at home I was very lucky I had I had a had house in Stoke Newington which I loved I had my piano in the, in the living room and uh and I just hold up and luckily I could afford to not worry about money. And I just took the time I needed and I wrote the album and I played it again and again and then we recorded it. Um, but I think uh, I think it's quite interesting lyrically because, as you say, it has got everything in there, hasn't it? You know, 
And, and strangely, 43 minutes has been by far the most the most I've been connected with my audience. So I get a lot of letters and certainly at the time. So, so basically I recorded it and then uh, uh, Howard Berman at uh, the record company, who's head managing director of the record company said, his words were creatively, it's brilliant, commercially it's a disaster. And he wanted me to just record a cover or something and stick it on the end. So they had a sync and I said, I, I don't think so, you know. So eventually, so we couldn't get the album back, but, but I was a recouped artist. So eventually, because my manager was arguing with the people there and blah, blah, blah. And I just went in one day and said, look, Howard, I said, I, we, I don't think we have a, a future working relationship. Um, and I'm fully recouped. I'd like to go. And he let me go. It took me a while to get the album back. But then I did gigs. Uh, Herbie Flowers helped me enormously. And, He'd say, oh, there's this little gig by me in a church. Why don't, should we go and play a few songs off your album? Because he played on the album. So I did little bits and pieces like that. And then, and then what happened was that really grew. It, was, it never sold loads of copies. But this connection with the audience grew because, as we talked about before, the pain in whatever form it was in was in the album. And actually, I think people, and certainly for myself, if I listen to music, I want to hear the essence of the person that I'm listening to and, and, and people just really related to it because of course, everybody loses somebody, you know? So it was an interesting, really interesting thing to look back on now. You, know? you, you, I don't know if the word retreated is right, but you retreated into family life after that for a while. You, and I don't know if that's the right word because it's to you, you'd sort of, um, went off and had a family. Maybe that's the fairer way of saying it. Yeah. But it was, you know, and um, how important was it for you to be the mother after having the mother that you had? Um, well, I think, uh, I don't think I did, I didn't retreat. I, I retreated from music industry life. I, I think what happened was, basically, I realised throughout my mum's illness so before and after she died that what I was doing wasn't me you know all that I did a lot for I mean I was three years on the road promoting stock it's a lot you know 20 interviews a day all over the world it was hard work had a great time but I didn't do any music and um, I think I just knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do regardless of whether I was successful or not so so basically my musical life, I still kept writing. So I was still writing and working. Um, and so, and of course the Pink Floyd thing came up, which was great. Um, so it wasn't having children, I would say really was a chemical decision rather than uh, a psychological decision. Um, I was ready to have kids. I wanted to have kids before my mum died, but that didn't happen. It took me a long time to get pregnant. So, um, I didn't have Vicky till 1993 and then went on tour with Pink Floyd in 1994. So I was still working. I, I didn't kind of withdraw, if you like, at any point. Was the, uh, was the Pink Floyd tour a sort of supportive um, environment? Because as you know, I know Durga, who I, who I adore. Oh, right. I mean, Durga's, yes. a, you know, Durga's a toughie. <laughs> You know, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. She's opinionated, yeah. you know, yeah. she, but she's one of those people you can't ignore. And, mm. you know, she's got a wonderful heart. Mm. And I can imagine there was sort of almost like a, it's it's some somewhat of a family atmosphere because Dave Gilmore is actually a very nice person, you know. Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so the manager and the tour manager, Steve, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Pink Floyd's manager who's dead now. Steve O'Rourke. And Tony, what is the matter with my brain? Getting old, that's trouble. Uh, anyway, basically, they didn't want me to go on the tour. And I got phone calls from both of them. Um, but Dave, because Dave asked me, and this was the third time I've been asked to do Pink Floyd. And I really wanted to do it. But each time he called me, I had other things. And I'm not a person who would cancel everything. I'm, I'm like, I've agreed to do this, so I'm doing this. So it never happened. I'd worked with Dave a lot. I'd known him for a long time. Um, and I'd done the backing vocals on the division bell. So, um, so anyway, I said, look, it's fine with me. I said, but I'm not doing the tour unless my daughter can come with me. She was three months old when we did the album. 
they were like, you can't bring a baby on this tour, blah, 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 blah. And they're both lovely men, uh, both of them. Howard, Tony Howard, Steve O'Rourke. And, uh, and I did end up going. And actually, Vicky was just the joy of the tour. Everyone loved her and we had a great time. Um, I, Durga was kind of partying quite a lot at that point. So her life and mine didn't really, I mean, obviously we got fine and the, you know, the tour was fine. But I did get very close to Claudia because Claudia was a bit more of a stay in her room. She's a bit slower. Uh, you know, she liked, liked to join. So uh, she was, we'd go out for walks with Vicky and she's very Peckham. She very sadly died. Um, I don't know if you know, but a, few, a couple of years ago now, way too young. Uh, but we got great. And yes, it was, you know, they really looked after us. And there were lots of other kids on the tour. So Nick and Nettie's children were there, had two boys. Um, uh, Dave and Polly were just getting together, but Dave's kids were around as well. So, you know, there was, yes, it was a family atmosphere. We were very looked after. It was a great thing to do. How do you see your development in in your albums over the years in terms of their um, musicality? Because you you know you you said you look back and and you see um, the stop era as well, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a word for you, but it isn't really <laughs> right. Sort of more bubblegum in relation to what you do what you do today. So I'm just yeah. wondering how you see your own musical pro progression and how you value your own music today. And do you find the latter stuff much better in your own terms than what you did earlier? Um, no, I, I think I, well, I think what, what we're talking about here is production values. I don't think my songwriting has changed that much. I think hopefully I've got a bit better at it. Um, <laughs> uh, wait till you hear my new stuff. Um, and, um, but I, it really is about production, isn't it? You know, and I think I was so sort of, um, it, it's quite interesting when you're a sort of uh, blossoming singer, songwriter, which I saw myself as a singer songwriter. So Joni Mitchell, I didn't mention before, but you know, a big fan of singing songwriters from a very early age. Um, but the record company, it just wasn't fashionable. So, um, so Stuart Horner, my publisher, who I'm still really with now, uh, sent me over to America and then hence I wrote Stop and some other bits and pieces. Um, but I think, uh, I think I've become much more aware of genres as I've got older. And I think that it's a shame that there's not more creat creativity within record companies where they can, rather than trying to get the artist to do something or criticizing them, they focus on one particular aspect of what they do and say, look, why don't we do an album? I mean, because stop was all over the place, you know? I mean, they said to me, you know, it's too many, it's too mixed. Although I think it's one of its strengths that there was jazz, there was kind of a bit of sort of country, there was dance music, there was, you know. So I would have said, look, how about we've got stop? Why don't we do a blues album? Because that is, then something that the artist can relate to and, and focus on. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, but I, th I, think, I think really what you're talking about is production values. And I think that um, I just was never very confident. I really only got my confidence when I started working with Jules Holland and he was very good for me as a friend and still is um, and encouraged me to be yeah, who I was, which hadn't really happened up, up until then. And as close as I am to my brother, um, he's a very strong personality where music is concerned. Um, and I had to, at some point, kind of uh, disconnect from that. Not with Pete, because we're very, very close. But I, I, I needed to go off on my own and just try things on my own, because uh, I'm quite slow and uh, and have to do things at my own pace and on my own because I can't bear people watching what I'm doing. So I'm not a person to go and go, no, it's got to be like this. We're going to do this, you know. Um, so that took a long time for me to do. Um, and I still don't really have a concept of what that sounds like to other people. I mean, obviously, it's much more organic, certainly the last few bits and pieces I've done. Uh, but, uh, yeah, does that answer the question, Steve? Yeah, well, the other thing I wanted to talk about, because you lost your voice yes um and that must be for a singer 
a real, you know, a real loss. It's, you know, it's a really big thing if you're a singer to lose your voice. And I just wondered in essence, how you have come over that and be able to say, okay, I can move on from this and I can still do things without having um, this, you know, what has been special to me my whole life, uh, which is my voice. Well, I don't really, I mean, I'm really honest. So I lost my voice in 2007 and I've only just got to the point which you've just so very beautifully put. Um, And I think it was because in lockdown, I started, because everyone was saying to me, you can still write, you're a really good writer, you know. But when I wrote, I used my voice to write the songs. And so, you know, it's difficult. Um, But I've I've been teaching ukulele since 2010, which I love, but which hasn't been great for my voice and still isn't because I have, even if it's really bad, I have to sing to get them to play because people who are not musicians, they don't just suddenly pick up and sing loud. And if you're not singing, it's very hard to get the feel of the music going. So I, ha- I had to sing, which has been destructive, I have to say, but it's also been good in, in other ways. But in lockdown, what happened was I got back in touch with my friend, Danny Shogger, and I said, we've been talking about writing for ages. And he's a very, he's always been great with me. If I've if things have been difficult in the past and I've had trouble with doing vocals, I mean, Pete's fantastic to work with as well. Uh, but Danny is very, he's a real, he's a gentle friend. He's very kind and he gets it. And so I've done the work I've done with him on occasions. He's very good with vocals. So, um, and so I said, you fancy writing? I said, I think I'm about ready to have a go. I said, I've got a few ideas. And I said, I've written a couple of sort of uh, instrumental electronica things. Do you want to hear them? I sent him over. He said, oh, yeah. He said, well, we'll, we'll do a bit of writing. Anyway, we've written a, an electronica album, <laughs> but it has got singing on, and it's all auto-tuned. And I think, well, fuck it, I've earned my stripes. If anyone's allowed to auto-tune, I am. And I look back, and I think, God, I sang so in tune, and now it's so awful. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> um, what what is know, it about the a- ukulele that you love? Tell me, what, what, you know, it's an odd... It just seems... Well, I don't know, maybe it isn't an odd choice, but in my head, it's sort of like, oh, the ukulele, it's an odd, and I know it's very, it's sort of in, isn't it? Oh, there you go. There you go, Sam Brown okay. on the ukulele. Yeah, cool. All right, so you could play anything on the ukulele. I haven't got my glue on now, so I'm going to be a bit rubbish, but you can play, let me think. Um, uh, okay, go on. Oh, God. So what most people do is they go for a pop song that they want to play, like but like a Baba love, excuse my voice, Baba happiness, hello loneliness, I think I'm gonna cry. All right, okay, so you've got that. That's your obvious thing, three chords. Wow, I can play an instrument, that's brilliant, hooray. But then you can do things like, uh, see if I know what this is. Ready? I think it was a young man. Pimple Watson. Is it Pimple Watson? Yeah, everything. Oh my God. I played the silver ball from Soho down the right. And I still played them all. All right, so you can play that on a ukulele. You can play putting on the Ritz. You can play beautiful songs. I mean, the famous one is. So, you, you know, there's so much you can do. Um, and I think it's a really lovely way to learn music because learning music, there's so much you have to learn. There's chord structure, there's, you know, how what, what a chord is made up of. There's strumming patterns because essentially, like a guitar, it's a rhythm instrument. Um, and I suppose what really uh, got me doing it was I couldn't play it. So because I couldn't play I was learning and a couple of people said can you teach me I was like well yeah but I don't really know what I'm doing myself 
I've learned with my pupils and it's been, it's been great, great fun, good fun. You can't take it too seriously though, obviously. That's brilliant. It's brilliant to have an outlet and to be able to do something um, creatively because you obviously absolutely need to express your creativity today as well. And one thing you said at the beginning was that, you know, that sometimes life can, you know, give you shit. And, you know, you've had your fair share throughout your life. But I started with something which I want to say again that I really do think one thing you haven't lost, <laughs> and you may have lost your voice along the way, but one <laughs> thing you haven't lost is this innate warmth and kindness. Uh-huh. And it's still oh, there. And it was lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Sam Brown. Lovely to talk to you. Can we go for a drink one day, Steve? Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews. And here is where you can connect. made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, it's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.